0: Welcome to this special combined broadcast of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile. Here is your host, staff apologist Daniel Ray. When the Apostle
1: Paul shared the truth of the risen Christ Jesus with the Stoics and philosophers of Athens, he quoted from two Greek poets, Epimenides and Oratus. The lines Paul cites were both written about Zeus, the principal deity of the Greek pantheon. But does Athens have anything to do with Jerusalem? Is there any redemptive meaning or truth to be found in the mythologies of the ancient Greco-Roman cultures? The Apostle Paul thought so, and so did medieval scholar and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, whose life was transformed by a well-known late-night walk upon the grounds of Oxford College with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien as they discussed the nature of mythology. As an atheist, Lewis loved mythology, but as an atheist, he just assumed they were lies, though, quote, breathed through silver, end quote, beautifully moving, in other words, and that Jesus was just another myth like all the rest. Tolkien stopped him. No, Jesus was no mere myth, and myths are not just lies, but husks containing kernels of truth. In Christ, the myth becomes fact. All the myths that Lewis loved contain tinctures of the Christ who was and is to come. The first Christians were not borrowing from ancient pagan mythology. Rather, the mythical similarities found in Osiris, Balder, Dionysus, Zeus, Apollo, and Hercules, and the rest, were shadows and copies of who Jesus really turns out to be in a real place, in a real time. The greatest narratives of the ancient world all contain common themes of judgment of mankind being in desperate trouble, unable to save himself, the dire need of sacrifice, of a strong man, sometimes divine, sometimes both divine and human, sometimes even superhuman, performing the necessary but seemingly impossible salvific tasks to save those unable to save themselves. This hero often dies and or resurrects in the process. So what best explains the universal cross-cultural similarities of these mythical stories of the ancient past? And why are so many of these stories preserved in the stars and constellations above us? Our special guest on this two-part combined episode of Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens, Dr. Louis Marcos of Houston Baptist University, has a pretty good idea. In his latest book, Myth Made Fact, Dr. Marcos follows in the footsteps of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, bringing to life a very ancient idea that the myths of pagan antiquity are not just lies breathed through silver, but that they are part of God's general revelation to pagan nations and people, pointing toward the ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Marcos outlines how we as Christians can use the Greco-Roman pantheon creatively, imaginatively, and wisely in our effort to engage our culture, starved for meaningful narratives. Christianity is no mere myth. It is the culmination of myths made fact, the incarnate reality of God with us in space and time in a body, as a man for all mankind. Your book is... Is fantastic. Thank you for sending it to me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I have a kindred spirit with you, of course, coming from the HBU program where you are. Um, And the imagination and reason in the apologetics program, the cultural apologetics program, a fantastic uh, what is so needed in our culture because our culture is so starved for imagination. And you begin the book talking about this in a sense that. You, you you talked about a radio program that you were on and an interview that was conducted where the gentleman's like I don't read C.S. Lewis it's fiction, and you you do an excellent job in a couple of sentences of showing very quickly that that we've swallowed hook, line, and sinker this this enlightenment idea of empirical truth that if it's not if it's not empirically scientifically deducible then I'm not going to bother with it just give me the facts. And I don't need to trifle with all these imaginative things um, that, that, that cloud, you know, uh, our faith with all these incrustations of, of unnecessary things. You know, that uh, this, this, this imagination, this idea of imagination informing my faith just seems to be specious speculation. Um, but it, it spoke to me very clearly that we are a culture bereft of using our imagination in seeing God and his truth. Not in a pantheistic way god we 're not saying god 's in trees or anything like this, or but that but that we need the as as uh, you know Malcolm Geit, one of our the poet that you know and Michael Ward, they say that you know imagination is just as much an important faculty as our reason, but because of enlightenment philosophy, and rationality, we have sort of emphasized reason and logic over and against imagination as if imagination was somehow more fallen and susceptible to sin than logic and reason that somehow logic and reason have a much more a higher place in our our epistemology but your book sort of just blows that away out of the water we need to be more imaginative when we engage the culture and uh, it's really Paul on Mars Hill Acts 17 where he's reading from the Greek poets and using the Greek poets to build a bridge to the Athenians that uh, you know as some of your own poets have said in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring, and so myth made fact. I would say is 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 that imaginative way of redeeming uh, what we might call proto evangelical truths in the ancient Greek and Roman mythologies. And so it's it's a great. I was I was I loved it. It was it was wonderful. All the parts I got through it. So why don't you? there's a lot i, I threw out there <laughs> i'd pick something and uh and and unpack what you uh what you want to talk about uh, what is the myth made fact and how is it important for us today
2: well thanks for having me on daniel and, and it is important you know uh, hbu it's called a masters in cultural apologetics now what does that mean right generally in america when we think of apologetics we think of the left brain side the logic mm-hmm. the reason the history And I think that's all important. That's a part of the Christian worldview, and we need to fight for it. But by saying we do cultural apologetics means we want to speak to the whole person, Mm. not just the mind, but the heart, and yes, the imagination. Mm. And I'll tell you, Daniel, there might have been a time when that kind of logical, rational, scientific apologetics was very, very needed. Mm. But I would say not so much now. Especially if we're going to get this next generation, this generation that's falling for transgenderism and CRT and everything new fashion that comes along. If we are going to reach them, we have to tell a better story, mm. a better narrative. Mm. And we have the best story. Right? When I was younger, we used to say creation, fall, redemption. But now we know better. Creation, fall, redemption, redemption reconciliation or restoration, and even glorification, if you want to fix yes. step, that it is a much wider and bigger story. And we understand that, yes, the Bible has a lot of systematic theology. Thank God we have the book of Romans and all the other places that state doctrine clearly, because doctrine is our skeleton. Without pr- proper doctrine and creeds, we would be a giant jellyfish. But right. we're more than skeletons. We have flesh and blood. We have that which makes us individual human beings. Mm-hmm. And the Bible is systematic in that sense, but it is also a grand narrative yes. filled with poetry and every other genre of literature. And so, if we want to present the whole Bible to whole people, we need to engage the imagination and the emotion as well as the reason and logic. Mm. Mm. And I really find that in these myths, uh, I'm not even sure who first came up with this definition, but I love this definition. When one person, when you or I go to bed and we have a dream, that's a dream. But when a whole tribe or a whole nation dreams together, we get a myth. Mm. And I really think that the myth expresses the desire of the nation, sometimes specific nations, sometimes the whole human race, if you will. Yes, Lewis, you know, again, for Lewis at the core is not only logic and reason, but desire that we have these inbuilt joys and yearnings that God put in us. And if we follow those yearning and desire to its proper end, it will lead us to Christ.
1: Right, right. And that that is what you're doing here with uh, with Myth Made Fact, which comes from an essay. Uh, that Lewis wrote. Uh, I reviewed that again last night. I, I went through yeah. all the markings that I did when I went through my yeah. master's degree. Um, but I wanted to address this because it's it's so central to your argument and and what you've done. Uh, I, w- I would first classify this myth made in fact. It's a wonderful. I would even call it, it. It's kind of built like a devotional book. It I mean, is, you,
2: and, I, and I think you can read a devotional. Yeah, book and you can
1: right, and you can. Uh, you you have pedagogical tools. Uh, you have applications. You have scripture. Um, it's it's very resourceful. It's not a book you have to read from from beginning to end. You can skip around and, and find your favorite myth or whatever, and then apply it to to, to biblical truths. And and so um, one of the things that excites me about this, Lou, is is the way in which I mean, this is all C.S. Lewis, really. His idea of what you talk about in the book and what Lewis talks about in the Myth Made Fact essay. This idea of a corn king um, being this idea of a dying. And rising God, that permeates a wide variety of, of cultures, both ancient and present. That uh, we have this this mythos, and it, it, it's not when we say myth, we're not saying not true. We're not we're not equating the idea of myth to complete falsehood, which is oftentimes the way the word is applied. But um, as as Lewis says in that Myth Made Fact essay, he says, you know, if if the Christian story is true, if Jesus is the the factual coming king uh, in a specific time, in a specific place. He is the fulfillment. He is this corn king myth, this dying and rising God. Uh, the ambiguities are stripped away, and now we have specificity. We have Pilate. We have, we have the apostle Paul. We have first century Judaism. We have Israel. We have places, times, and people where this specifically occurs. And I love what Lewis says in the, in the Myth Made Fact, and I'll read this, and I'll have you comment on it. Um, he says I think we are rather in a position like this supposing you had before you a manuscript of some great work either a symphony or a novel then there comes to you a person saying here is a new bit of the manuscript that i found it is the central passage of that symphony or the center center chapter uh, the central chapter of that novel the text is incomplete without it i have got the missing passage which is really the center of the whole work and lewis goes on to say that we can plug this new material into the rest of the symphony and, and it would seem from what you've said in the book That, that what Lewis is arguing Is that the surrounding Orchestral pieces uh, Of mythology Of Gre- Greek and Roman mythologies um, Really are, really are, are on the peripheral But the center of this orchestra That centerpiece is Jesus Christ revealed to us, a God in Jesus revealed to us in the flesh. Um, and, and is that accurate? Would you to say where you're yeah, going?
2: Yeah, let, let, let's step back and make sure everybody
1: knows what we're talking about.
2: Here. Right, right, yes. Most Christians know that Lewis was an atheist before he became a believer. Right. But I think a lot of people think he went directly from one to the other, which, of course, is the story of Lee Strobel, Joshua McDowell, Chuck yep. Colson, right? But Lewis didn't go directly from atheism to Christianity. First, he became a theist, a believer in God. Mm -hmm. And it took him another year, year and a half, two years, we debate that now, to go from being a theist, a believer in God, to a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and a belief in the Trinity, the Incarnation. What was holding him back? Well, here's the odd part, Daniel. What was holding Lewis back is that he was, like myself, an English professor and a lover of mythology. And Mm -hmm. he particularly loved a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Mm Frazier. And he works out this corn kink, That when you look across all ancient cultures, they have a story of this sort of God come to earth who dies and rises again. Now, it's not a literal resurrection. It's more of what we call a seasonal myth, one that follows the the seasons, what we don't have in Houston. But anyway, it follows the seasons (laughs) of life and death and rebirth. Mm. And Mm. some of the names of these corn kings, if you're Egyptian, you call them Osiris. If you're a Greek, you call them Bacchus or Adonis. If you're Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. If you're Persian, you call him Mithras. If you're a Norseman, you call him Balder, right? They're all there, all along. And at first, Lewis just thought, well, Jesus is just the Hebrew corn king. Nothing more, nothing less, which seems to be what Joseph Campbell believed, right? But then one day, Lewis and Tolkien, another man named Hugo Dyson, they were taking a walk on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford. It's called Addison's walk, this beautiful tree-lane walk, and as they walked around and around, Lewis, again, how can I just, it's just a myth. What do I care about some, you know, dead Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago? And then Tolkien said the sentence that changed Lewis's life. You know, Jack, his nickname, right? Do you ever wonder, maybe the reason that Jesus sounds so much like a myth is that he's the myth that became fact, or the myth that came true. He learned that probably from Chesterton, who said that that Jesus or Christianity was a true myth. All right, now let's kind of bring it together uh, to your question, which is a good one. Daniel, I'm sure, like me, you've been worried that, are you telling me that until the coming of Jesus, God just ignored 99% of humanity and only cared about the Jews? Well, only to the Jews did he speak directly, what we call special revelation but he didn't ignore the rest of humanity. He spoke to them through their reason, yes, but also through their imagination, what C.S. Lewis called the good dreams of the pagans. And this is so important, and it it explains this idea of the missing piece. If we're Christians, we know and believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled all the Old Testament law and prophets. Mm -hmm. But we also need to understand that Jesus is the savior of the world who fulfilled all the highest yearnings of the pagan peoples. He, Christ, in his literal incarnation, death and resurrection, bodily resurrection from the grave, that's the missing piece that makes sense of all the pagan yearnings, the, the groping in the dark, the reaching, the understanding of the need for sacrifice of the need for blood, of the need of a bridge somehow. All of that was there, but it didn't fully make sense till Christ came and all of it came together. So when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, the liberal theologians would say, oh yes, truth is on the top of the hill and there are many ways around. Well, I actually accept that, but the truth that is at the top of the hill is Christ and there are many ways around it. But I believe that if you truly fo- seek and ye shall find, if you truly follow, it will lead you to Christ, as it did the Magi. Right. Now, of course, Daniel, right. when the Magi got there, they could have said, forget this, you got to be kidding. I came a thousand miles from this.
1: They a baby? An infant, a child? He's dirtying
2: his diaper. What am I doing? I'm right. out of here. I'm right. never following a stupid star again, right? Yeah. But no, what they said is, yes, this is what we have been seeking all of our life. I never could have guessed it, but now that I see it, I recognize that this is the King. Right. That's the piece that makes
1: sense of their long, long journey. Yes, yeah, and it, it's interesting, Lou, because uh, uh, your book reminded me of and what you just said. Um, I was reading through Daniel this week, and 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 I was reading the passage in when uh, God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream huh. to Daniel. And Daniel's response – in in Daniel's response, it echoed something that that, that your book reminded me of in God speaking through general revelation to to pagan people and pagan nations or pre-Christian nations, um, not as specifically to to these people as he did with Israel. But Daniel says this, uh, it is God who reveals profound and hidden things. Um, he, it is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. And you mentioned the kings, the, the astrologers. A lot of people speculate that they were from Babylon. Yeah, and, maybe
2: and, there's something about Daniel. We don't know for sure. But right, yeah, but but the, the idea
1: that, that, that God gives, he was still, he he's the one who's giving wisdom to all these ancient people. I mean, the greatest minds mm-hmm. of any ancient culture are, are, are breathing these myths as as a culture they, they're they're breathing these myths into the people and I think it was Lewis at, at in that uh, Addison's walk where he told Tolkien he said their lies breathe through silver you know and he got a stern rebuke from old Tollers there uh, uh, no no Jack uh, they're not um, you know and and one thing that you say that 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 I think is a great question for a lot of skeptics and atheists who who claim that that Christianity and Judaism are just borrowing from Marduk or just borrowing from, from Gilgamesh or just borrowing from this, this dying and rising balder business or God or whatever, Osiris, that we're just borrowing these things. But Lewis says in his essay, uh, Myth Made Fact, that, that if Christianity is true, we would be embarrassed if these things were not there. Right. because if they were there, it would seem like a foreign god had invaded
2: the earth. Right. or at least a solely Jewish God. Then suddenly it would, it would prove the liberal theologians who says, Yahweh is just an angry tribal God and cares only about Israel, even though when he called Abraham, he said, I am blessing you so that you will be a blessing to others. It was always God's intention to bless all the nations. Right. But you're right, if, it would be a stumbling block, Lewis says, if those myths weren't there. Yes. Because again, it would seem like Jesus is a foreign invader. Mm -hmm. rather than the true corn king Mm -hmm. that has stepped into human history. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a difference between data and the interpretation of data. Right. Best example of this, you go to to sixth grade anywhere in America, you're taking social studies, not history, because we don't teach history in our country. You're taking social studies. And you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a wonderful epic, right, Babylonian. And in it, there's a flood story. And if you had a typical teacher like I did in the public school system, Now, children, we now know that all ancient cultures have a story of a global flood, and that just proves that the Bible is just a myth. And I remember even there as a precocious sixth grader thinking, whoa, whoa, there's another way to read that data. If every single ancient culture has a story of a global myth, I'm sorry, global flood, maybe that means there was one. And maybe in all other cultures, it retained only its mythic value, but only in the Bible, Is there some historical value in Noah? So it depends how you read it, right? It's like, I love seeing those uh, posters that Darwinians put up of what's called homology. So you've got the the, the arm of a man and the dorsal fin and a bat, and they show that it's all got the same design. And they say, proof of evolution. They said, well, yeah. Maybe. But to me, it looks like proof of that common designer who doesn't keep reinventing the wheel. Right. That's so, right. That's I right. Mean, it's, it's one of, and, and we need to understand, Daniel, that if you go on the atheist website today, one of the biggest arguments they use against Christianity is to talk about Osiris and Adonis and Tammuz. Yes. And they think it disproves. It's like, no, it doesn't. It shows that we were all created in the image of the same God who has put eternity in the hearts of men, mm. who has put a yearning inside of us. Mm. Why else would such diverse cultures come up with the same basic understanding, the basic yearning? And see, this is what's brilliant about Lewis. Two of his major arguments that point first to God and then Christ are the Tao. That's his word yes. for the universal moral ethical code. And he says, look, <clears throat> it's in the um, it, it's in the appendix to the abolition of man where he takes all the ancient law codes and lines them up, and lo and behold, they all have something like the Ten Commandments. They all understand basic moral ethical behavior. Well, how can that happen if we're merely evolved? No, it, it's, it's as if we're all made in the image of God. We all have what Christians call a conscience, right? So the, the, the universality of the moral ethical code, which is very similar to the universality of mathematics, that seems to prove that we were all made in the image of God, of, of one creator. But the Corn King myth shows that not only do we all share a conscience from this creator, we all share certain desires instilled in
1: our imagination. And all of those paths lead to Christ. Yes. And, and in fact, I, you, you mentioned the skeptic and atheist uh, objections to... To uh, Christianity, based on this uh, mythology, there's a wonderful atheist writer online who is—he's not a theist, but he's sympathetic to to Christians in in, in helping atheists n- to understand history correctly, because there are so many caricatures of Christian history and how Christianity developed. That, uh, and one of the things he addresses is Jesus mythicism—that Jesus is just a, a, a from a long line of, of of mythical characters. But one thing that your book reminded me of, and and I think I'm so glad to have. You want and talk about this is that the skeptic is bereft of explaining. Okay, if Jesus is just a myth, why the Corn King myth at all? Right. And and I think that 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 needs to be addressed. I mean, we can't. What what is the um, what is the best explanation for why? we have so much like Lewis's tau. Why do we have a, a common morality? Why in our mythical stories do we see commonalities, as you said earlier, of sacrifice, uh, of the gods intertwining with man, of the struggle, the strife? Um, why these similarities across cultures that, that could not communicate? I mean, one of the things that in preparation for um, – Uh, an essay I was working on in a presentation I was giving I came across the idea of the constellation of Ursa Major Uh, it was known as a bear throughout cultures in both Europe and North America that could not possibly have communicated to one another that this small weird amalgam of stars was a bear why? There's something there. I don't know what it finally was. I don't know why the bear uh, was, was designated by these two cultures, but, but it points back to what you're saying in your book that in these mythiopoic stories that, that Lewis loves so much, um, there are uh, hints and glimmers of, of, of pre-incarnate truth, if we want to call it proto-evangelical truths, about what God is going to do uh, in Christ because he has written uh, our narratives his narrative into us, and so when we exp- when we put forth our best expressions, I can't help but think you know in Hollywood this is what we're doing. You look at all the Marvel and DC. Oh. this is we've transferred the superheroes from the sky, right? right all the stars and we've put them on the silver screen. but it's it's it's, it's the same thing, Lou, I think, right that that, that the myths of our silver screen today, are basically saying the same thing the Greeks and the Romans did. Something's wrong with us, and we need a hero. We need a savior. Lewis has what we would call the argument by desire, the argument
2: by joy. And it's very simple. It works like this. The fact that we get hungry proves or at least strongly suggests that we are creatures made for eating. Hmm. The fact that we get thirsty seems to prove that we are creatures made for drinking, unless you're a Southern Baptist like I am. Right? Well, the <laughs> fact that we yearn for things outside of nature, right, that are metaphysical or mm-hmm. supernatural, the fact that we yearn for that suggests there is something outside of nature that is the origin of that. If we are what the naturalists say, if nature is the whole show, that's Lewis's phrase, right, right. If all there is is nature. If nature is a closed system, then how can unconscious nature? produce in us a yearning for something outside of nature. Okay, right. Nature put in us a yearning for something that nature itself knows nothing about. Right. The yearning is a clue to something. Why? And you know, remember, the problem of pain is only a problem once you believe in God. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe in God, there is no problem of pain because what we should expect is a world of arbitrary death and, and dismemberment and whatnot. Yes. You know, it, it's only for Christians. That we wonder right and yet you know again lewis kind of talks about this in different ways people say there can't be a god because there's so much injustice in the world and your response is if there were no god you would not know the world is unjust that's right because the only way you can know something is unjust is if you can measure it against something just But where does that idea of justice come from? If we live in a world that is only survival of the fittest, natural selection, then what is the origin? I mean, Lewis is all about the origin. The cause has to be greater than the effect. This is just simple mathematical, logical thinking. Mm. Water does not rise above its source. There there needs to be something bigger that is the source of something that is smaller. And there needs to be a source of these desires. Why Again and again across cultures, the same thing, the same understanding. Now, look, Daniel, obviously an ancient Greek or Roman cannot have a literal understanding of sin. Why? Because sin is that which violates a holy God. And if you don't have a holy God, you can't have sin. And yet all of the cultures, no matter how crazy their gods are, have an understanding of what we often call taboo guilt, of a certain crime that brings ritual impurity. And most of these corn king myths are sort of linked to that, right? The communal guilt. That's what the whole play Oedipus is about sort of and why it touches us on such a deep level, why we should care about a man who kills his father and marries his mother uh, before the 21st century, at least. Um, And yet we do because we understand it's all tied up with this idea of taboo, of something wrong that needs to be atoned for, of the need even for sacrifice. And the myths are telling us these things. If we listen, if we have ears to hear. And one more thing, we go uh, in in uh, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton, of course, huge influence on Lewis. Chesterton says, you notice that the Christ child is visited by both the shepherds and the wise men. And he sort of uses that as a metaphor for folk religion, which is all about rituals and sacrifices and whatnot. Those are the shepherds. But the philosophers, the, the magi, they sort of represent, you know, Stoicism, you know, Epicurean, they, they, this sort of cold, uh, logical philosophy. And really, those two are almost enemies. They don't go together. And yet in Christ, they meet together, just like, yeah. if anybody knows what I'm talking about, the fox and ungut come together until we have faces. In Lewis's last novel, we need both the the, the philosophy, but we also need the sort of messy ritual. Hmm. Both of those need to come together. And it's in Christ that the corn king ritual comes together with the highest and best of philosophy of Mm. what the magi knew
1: in their study of the stars right right that's beautiful lewis um one thing i'd like to 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 talk about we'll get into the book and and give a couple of examples of some of this, uh, how you, how you unpack some of these myths. Um, but before we do, I want to sort of address something that I've heard. I mean, my love is cosmology astronomy. Uh I love talking about one of the things that fascinated me about your book was, was it's, it's linkage. Now you didn't do it directly, but you can make these direct links to, to constellation lore because they're pretty much basically Greco Roman myths, um, above us right now. Um, but the the concept of what we touched on earlier about you know I don't read Lewis it's fiction it's harmful mm-hmm. um, people accuse C.S. Lewis of course of introducing or a lot of people have have criticized Lewis of introducing children to paganism and witchcraft mm-hmm. um, but it, it I, I want to address this. General complaint that uh, Lou you're just mixing up Christianity with paganism. what are you doing man you're introducing people to falsehoods and lies we've put all that behind us I mean doesn't Romans one say those people were foolish for believing in these in these all of this nonsense um why isn't isn't this like like aren't you introducing people to 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 occult practices and paganism again why are why are we even dealing with these myths and and so how do we address that
2: a good example of this is the date of Christmas, December 25th, right? And mm-hmm. you've probably met people that say, no, we would refuse to celebrate Christmas because it's got pagan elements to it, right? right? Yeah. And many people see that as a sort of watering down theology of theology, of the gospel, of doctrine. But I would say, no. What the early Catholic Church was doing was building a bridge. They were engaged in cultural apologetics, right? After Constantine, as slowly we want the empire to become Christian How are we going to bring these former pagans into Christianity? How are they going to understand How are we going to build a bridge? Like Astlan says, I am the great bridge builder. How are we going to do it? And they noticed on December 25th, which back then was December 21st, which we call the winter solstice, the first day of winter. There were two different pagan uh, um, festivals coming together. One was the Sol Invictus, the birthday of the unconquerable sun. The other was the Saturnalia, a time when the pagans, it was almost like a Mardi Gras celebration yeah. where they were looking back to the golden age of Saturn that had been lost. And already at this time, they are worshiping or their heart is open to new beginnings, right? To a, what we would call a rebirth of Eden. They would call it a rebirth of the golden age. But they realized that there was an overlap here. They're already celebrating. Let's take that celebration and channel it to Mm. its proper source at the top of the hill, as I said before. Mm. So there is a part for this. And, you know, as Lewis says somewhere, in the beginning, it was the pagans that were most readily converted. They understood and they saw. And we still have neo-pagans today. And here's the problem. Okay, today, if I start talking to you about numbers and numerology, people are going to immediately think that you're some kind of new age, you know, crank. (laughs) Yes. But actually, that idea of numbers is very important in the early church. It's very important in the Bible itself. Numbers like 40, like 3, like 4, like 7, like 12. Numbers are important. They're clearly important to God. All those measurements for the, you know, the temple and things like that, the Ark and the Covenant, and whatnot. I mean, and, and anyway, remember, geometry is, is sacred. It's, it's sort of like philosophy. It deals with the ultimate form of things mm. and remember the ancient world okay they didn't have tv they didn't have radio they didn't have any of that stuff they didn't have printed books long enough right They had the stars and of course there was no light pollution back then right. so they could really see yes. the stars yes yes. And,
1: yes. you
2: know it it, it it is an important thing right uh, i'm sure you remember daniel watching the original version of clash of the titans you remember that movie
1: i did i went to the uh, uh, theater when the the Harry, ray harryhausen uh, stop motion it. animation it was, it was oh yeah stop
2: and, and of course, the great Laurence Olivier plays Zeus. And you remember at the end when the story's over, you know, he says, "And we will take your story and put it in the stars." And we see, yeah. you know, Perseus and even the vain Cassiopeia will be up there, and all the image Andromeda. And he says, "And there they will remain, for the stars will never die." You know, there you go. There you reverberated go. in my own head as a kid watching that on, on the big. You missed or...
1: your calling, Lou. You should have yeah. been uh, Lawrence Olivier. There we go. A
2: great, great actor. I still miss him. That's right. And, yeah. But you know, there, there is this idea that there is again. It, it's all summed up in God has written eternity in the hearts of men, or everybody's favorite Augustine phrase from the opening of the of the Confessions: "O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee." Hmm. This is the desire that draws us towards God, and yeah. we can reject it, yeah. But if we follow, the seek and ye shall find. Truly, follow that desire to its end Christ will be there
1: right right one of the things that I do and, and, and this and, and this is going to lead me into we can talk specifically about some of the chapters in your book about how you apply this myth made fact idea and how you take a myth and you, you take uh, gospel truth and you sort of bring them together and do a side by side and draw some moral lessons from them and you're not saying that God intended these myths to right. say this we are applying our what, what the Apostle Paul did in, in Acts 17 again, where we're, we're looking at the best pagan stories that are out there and finding bits and pieces of the Christian narrative. One of the things that I enjoy doing as I stargaze, you know, I, I do go out and I find some dark skies. There's a wonderful time of year. Uh, it is this time of year now where you can see this. If you're in a super dark sky, you can see the Milky Way at a certain time of night uh, arcing over arcing over from uh, southwest to to northeast. Uh, Yes, southwest to northeast. But it looks like a, a column of smoke. And so it begins at this constellation in the southern part of the sky. It begins at this constellation called the altar or Sagittarius, which sometimes is referred to as a kind of altar. So it looks like you have this smoke rising up from an altar. And then as the smoke is rising, right in the middle of this arc right above is the constellation of Cygnus or the Northern Cross. So you have this smoke line going through the cross. And then it ends at the great W of Cassiopeia, the queen. And so what I what I share with people sometimes is I say not that God intended this I'm not doing this but I'm using my imagination to tell a gospel story that you have the era of the altar and sacrifice you know representing the fall and the need for restoration and the altar and the animal sacrifice that smoke rises up and then what do you have you have that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that is the cross that is there, and then what comes after the cross but the Church Age, the Queen, the one who, the Bride of Christ, and so in those three things, I kind of use that as a as a mnemonic device when I stargaze. If I tell people, but uh, I say all that to say that uh, you're taking Greek and Roman myths and you're applying Christian truth to them as well in in a quite a redemptive fashion that I don't think I have ever seen. In all my reading and writing about these topics, I have never seen such a composite, such a wonderful compilation of how we can, uh, we can, we can claim some truth from these things. And so I thought it would be great for you to pick out a couple of your favorites and and kind of unpack what you're actually doing uh, here in in making these comparisons.
2: Great. Thanks, Daniel. First, we we should say since you love it, can you tell people what's wrong with saying the Milky Way galaxy?
1: Uh, it, well, it's only one arm of of a right. much more gigantic spiral conglomerate of other arms and, uh, and you
2: know that the phrase milky way galaxy is redundant it's like saying yes it's Brooklyn like saying River. right it's like yeah.
1: saying uh, the los angeles angels yeah because Baseball. milky
2: galaxy right. is the greek word for milky way Right, so right wonderful. But then, yes, and people yes. say it down here, the Rio
1: Grande River, which is like saying the big, big river, the big river river. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but Gallic, Gallic yeah. comes from uh, the word milk, as you say. The still, yeah, gala, yeah. So it's, it's, it's still Gaelic Aburico is a now, big dessert. Completely, completely. No, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Completely unrelated. Well, kind of related. I just read this uh, not too long ago. There was a scientific cosmology paper out there where some of the cosmologists were purporting that the universe was created, uh, is designed with uh, filaments of galaxies. So there's these tendrils of galaxies that exist in clusters, and they suggested that the structure of the universe might be something akin to a honeycomb. So how about that? We have we have galaxies filled with milk, the gallic, and we, oh, we have the honey.
2: It's the land of milk and honey in the sky. <laughs>
1: there you go. Why I not?
2: Love that. The, the you know? Heaven, Ashland's yeah. country that we yearn for. I mean, that's right. Know, I've read a lot in, in some some good cosmologists. You know, people talk about oh we're the blue dot. We're so small. We're insignificant. But there's good evidence to believe that the universe needs to be as humongous and spaced out as it is to allow for life on the planet Earth. Mm. Since remember the rest of the universe is 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 making the raw materials out of which earth and everything else is made. And so it's possible that we can't have the earth and life as it is if the universe isn't so widely spread out and crazy as it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it I think it attests to God's magnanimous grace. You know, people yeah. say, Well, the universe wasn't designed primarily for human beings. It seems like a waste. If it was designed for us, why yeah. all this space? But if you look, if you read Colossians, ultimately we do participate in that glory. Okay. But ultimately, the creation of the universe is through Christ and for Christ and and by Him. And so, let's. I'm I'm very excited Ooh. to get into the yeah. Let's jump in to well, the to the mythical narrative. So you you pick one and and run with it. One, and one that, that,
2: you know sums up a lot of what we've said. And and I'll say this first because this is something that I think I discovered myself. I haven't seen it anywhere else. But I talked about the whole mystery of Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries, which was linked to this seasonal cycle. It's the story of, of uh, Demeter and Persephone, of how mm. uh, Mo- Mother Earth Demeter, how her daughter Persephone was raped and kidnapped by uh, Pluto or, or, or Dis or Hades and taken down. And they cut that deal, right, where the seasonal cycle comes out of this, right? Mm. But what a lot of people don't know is tied to that seasonal cycle There was a place in Eleusis. It was the oldest cult in the ancient Greek world called the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they sort of worshipped at an altar, and they would have a ripe ear of corn. Now, first of all, we need to understand that the idea of the corn king has nothing to do with corn, because the British, for some reason I don't know, call wheat corn. Okay, so Hmm. it really should be the wheat king. Remember, corn comes from the the New World. They didn't
1: have
2: corn in, in Europe until whatever, 500 years ago. So it really means the wheat king. And by the way, another fun thing for your listeners: uh, uh, Stephen, uh, Steve, uh, the horror guy, uh, Stephen King. Stephen King, yeah. Stephen King was having fun when he wrote a book called *The Children of the Corn*, where it's literally a corn king because it's in the (laughs) cornfield. So he's actually making a very funny joke. In calling that the children of the corn.
1: Okay? I think that. he knew he was doing that, I'm sure. Probably, Probably. so. He's a pretty smart guy.
2: He's a pretty smart guy, right? And, and interested in spiritual things. Not a believer, but certainly interested right. in spiritual things. Uh, and where they point to and myths and how they, you know... Uh, I've read an incredible Christian uh, um, explanation of, of the It movies uh unfortunately i can't test it because nothing could convince me to watch those kind of movies I uh, so i will never be able to test it but it, they made a good argument <laughs> i do not watch horror like that
1: i don't either i don't either yeah yeah, yeah. i won't
2: be able to sleep but the uh so so anyway the the Ellosinian mysteries they would put a ripe ear of corn or wheat and it was also linked to bacchus and the cycle of the grape all of these sorts of things now i argue in the book and i, I said a little bit about this in this this sort of a prequel to this book called from achilles to christ by christians who read the pagan classics This just moves us deeper into the myth. That book was about the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Greek tragedies. This goes deeper. Let's get to the real original raw material of most of the art and literature and music in the Western world until about 200 years ago. Um, So what I discovered is, okay, we've talked a lot about Paul at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, how he built a bridge. I believe that there's a place in the gospels where Jesus builds a similar bridge linking the pagan and the christian
0: if you're a regular listener of apologetics profile we encourage you to check out good heavens a podcast about the universe science astronomy and cosmology from a biblical perspective hosted by staff apologist daniel ray and wayne spencer if you're a longtime listener of good heavens we hope you'll check out apologetics profile a weekly podcast that covers a variety of apologetics topics as well as Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other non-Christian ideas and worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Thank you for taking the time to join in the conversation today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.